Good morning. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host, welcoming you. This is December 11, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Orange County's electoral drama continues, folks. At the last check of the Orange County Registrar of Voters, the state senator 34th district has incumbent Janet Wynn ahead of Tom Umberg by two votes. That tallying started yesterday. I don't think that's the final, though, yet. So uh, that's the second that's the recount she requested. So on the national level, I'm quoting from the letter to the Washington Post editor from 44 former U.S. senators, Democrats and Republicans. I quote, it is our shared view that we are entering a dangerous period and we feel an obligation to speak about the serious challenges to the rule of law, the Constitution, our governing institutions, and our national security. Well, with all that continues the rollout of the second week of the COP24 Climate Talks in Katowice, Poland. Shahir Mazri is back from a 30-state climate science dog and pony show, and he has a book fresh off the press entitled Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change. With Mother Earth heating up, drying out, and or flooding at some pretty disturbing rates, Shahir offers a jovial text to call the cats down from the climate denial trees. In the second segment, recently elected Costa Mesa City Council member Arliss Reynolds will offer perspectives from the bottom of the ballot to the top of citywide leadership. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show, everybody. My guest today, first guest, is climate science researcher, activist, and author Shahir Mazri. And Shahir has appeared many times now on Ask a Leader, so I'll briefly introduce him. He is an environmental health scientist with a doctor of science degree in environmental health from Harvard University, as well as a master of science from Harvard and a bachelor of science from UCLA in environmental science. And he was spawned by a science teacher. So that's where it all began. He has given numerous talks on climate change, and maybe some of you have seen him, and is published in The Hill, among other newspapers, as well as scientific journals. He is an assistant specialist in air pollution exposure assessment and epidemiology at UCI. His recently released book entitled Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change, focuses on addressing common misconceptions on climate. In it, he's a bit of a Renaissance man covering chemistry, physics, biology, engineering, and politics. He joins me in studio. Welcome back, Shahir, to Ask a Leader. Thanks for having me. So perhaps a good place to start would be, um, I, I think I want to get all of the hotel owners to put a copy of your book next to the Gideon Bible. In wow. every hotel room. Wouldn't that be terrific? <laughs> I, I think that's a, a modest beginning. I want this book the heck out there. Well, thank you. Well, I want to start with how you've been blending science with pedagogy in both your road trip 
and this remarkable book. You've honed your arguments on the inestimable local climate denier, former congressman, soon-to-be former congressman, Dana Rohrbacher, representing California's 48th congressional district. Are you going to miss that guy? I'm not going to miss him. We've had some good conversations, but I'm, I'm very uh, excited to have somebody new uh, and have some fresh dialogue with a new uh, House member. Well, I, and I want to say, I'm just as tone goes, I, I consider myself reasonably informed on this, but there, there were still wonderful nuggets in there to learn. But I, I'm noticing, though, in your book, with there's an increasing use of italics for emphasis that your, I'm wondering if either your editor or you are signaling raised desperation. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, italics writing in there. And no, it was just uh, my own desire to emphasize um, certain language, uh, and in particular, you know, as you mentioned, signaling that you know we do have an extremely uh, important problem that we need to address. So why don't we take up then, because of the, this desperation we're talking about, that what's going on at the second week of the COP24 I'd also, I'd like, besides sending the copy to all the hotel owners, I'd like to make sure that the current administration's climate advisor, Griffith Wells, trafficking fossil fuels at the Poland meeting, that he gets a copy of your book as well. I think that's great. I, I'm, uh, I, I'm for this book getting to an, into as many hands as possible. Well, and that's why you wrote it. That's why I wrote so it. So tell us your target audience? You know, the target is actually quite broad. So, uh, you know, people who are already very acquainted with the topic of climate change um, have found this book to be very useful because even for people who have been doing this for five or six years, giving climate talks, um, they've told me they've read things that they didn't know, or now they better understand things than they did previously. Um, for people who are on the fence, not really sure if we've got a problem, uh, my book, I hope to really convey that we do, in fact, have a tremendous problem. Uh, however, there are things we can do about it. And the whole uh, last few chapters are dedicated to explaining what the solutions are and how we can uh, best apply ourselves as individuals to bring about some solutions to this climate crisis. So any impressions of uh, what's what's happening in Poland right now? Well, I mean, you've been uh, talking about that in the Hill and other places. Yeah, it's a little disconcerting to see, you know, Australia and the United States sort of using it to plug coal and fossil fuels. Um, however, I think I think that that's hopefully a message that'll be largely ignored. Uh, we saw some activists showing up at those meetings, which I think is necessary. But in general, it's very important that we convene once again as a globe to try to figure out how we can continue to move this problem forward. It's very, it's been far too long. Um, uh, basically kicking the climate can down the road. And I think we're starting to see in the United States uh, for sort of the first time what a warmer climate actually can mean for the economy, natural disasters, so on and so forth. I think the people are starting to recognize that. You're seeing that 2018, 2017, 2018, which is also the time where you're finishing up your book. And I know it's always hard to know when you're being somewhat topical to know when to stop the project. But you you wanted to stop it before you took your road trip, which we'll get to, I'm hoping, this morning. But uh, so... Yeah, we, we wanted to definitely get the book out there because once we started the climate, uh, Road for Climate Action, there was just no way I was going to be able to write on the road. So Right, right, right. But let's talk about the trip. So you visited 30 states. We sent you packing last, just pre, or early August, I think. Yeah, 36 and, states. And 36 you did. So when you were 
you finished the book, so you had all these these misconceptions, these solutions all in your head, and bringing them up. Were you finding any fertile ground that you approached on you and Athena? Your yeah, in fact, uh, one of the more conservative um, areas, in fact, uh, the, the organizer for the event in Shadron, Nebraska, told us this is going to be a very tough crowd. Uh, we really want you to be here. In fact, it was one of the last events that we booked. We were already pretty booked up for the day, but we squeezed in the town of uh, Shadron and about 14 or 15 people bought books out of and 50 people or 55 people attended. It was at a high school. Uh, we had a great event. A lot of people seemed interested and at least open enough to this issue of, uh, you know, that we've got a climate problem to actually purchase a book, which you can't say at all events. Um, so I was pretty... That's a big sale. Yeah, it's a big sale. And it really suggested that people have their views, but um, are more open to, you know, trying to figure out what's going on uh, than maybe we would otherwise think. And I think, again, almost everywhere you go, we traveled, again, 36 states. People have a story related to climate change, how it's affecting them. That's what I was trying to get at. The, the years 2017 and 2018, was that in the minds of the Shadron, Nebraska residents? Yeah, and I mean, they recently... It's pressing? Yeah, they recently had a major wildfire. People know that these are tied to temperatures as it gets warmer, as it gets drier. A fires. prairie fire? Yeah, they had a fire, and they've got um, they've got local hills up there with forests. But yeah, they have massive wildfires, and they're getting the smoke from. In fact, in fact, it was from South Dakota. They're getting smoke from all over, even in California, places as far away as Wyoming. In Wyoming, they're still getting the smoke from California and Colorado wildfires. So they're definitely acutely aware that things are going on, and it's affecting their personal health. Uh, we met people in Colorado who are having respiratory issues because of these massive wildfires. Wow. In fact, the lady that we met in Colorado, she said she already uh, fled the East Coast because Lyme disease was getting too out of hand, which, again, is tied to a warmer climate. Right. These pests doing better in the winter. So she fled to Colorado. Uh, now she's having issues as these wildfires are becoming more prevalent. So that that may be um, misconception number one. When you go into the 50s, you're going to have to do another book and you're going to add to that. But uh. sort of like that you can get out of here. You can't get away. You can't get away. Change. I mean, the climate change is global. Yeah, it might not feel it might not manifest itself in terms of warmer temperatures in your area. It could be more extreme precipitation during the winter, which is what they're seeing up in the northeast quite a bit. Um, so climate change wears many faces, but this is all tied together. There's a common theme here and we've got to uh, correct the, our course before it's essentially too late. For those who've just joined us, my guest is Shahir Mazri. He is an air quality researcher here at UCI, and he has with Athena, his partner in partner in social good causes in mm -hmm. science, and partner in uh, congratulations. They they um, there was a proposal on this trip. That's right. I was going to figure out where is that. That wasn't going to go in your bio. It was gonna, it's going to go <laughs> into the uh, the tagline here. It's a, so 36 states that you visited. And uh, we're talking about your brand new book and weaving that into all of the, the late breaking news around climate forums around the world. The book is entitled Beyond Debate, Answers to 50 Misconceptions on Climate Change. I don't know if you have a section or if I can offer you a, a page that I thought imparts the kind of tone and sort of the... Uh, the, the approach to an, giving us insight about what's going on. Sure. So this is coming from page 26, uh, sorry, chapter 26, which is titled 
carbon dioxide isn't even toxic. Now, every chapter title is actually the title of a misconception. Correct. Um, so, I called it a myth, but I guess I use those interchangeably. Oh, no, that's fine, yeah. So, um, so yeah, the, the titles are, are sort of the myths that we're going to debunk. So moving to the second paragraph of, of this chapter, while we're on the topic of toxicity, it reads, it's well worth our time to point out some co-benefits of reducing carbon dioxide emissions. While carbon dioxide itself may not be toxic at ambient levels, its partners in crime are the most toxic substances in our atmosphere. What do I mean? Well, the main anthropogenic, or human-caused, sources of carbon dioxide emissions, cars and power plants, they don't release CO2 in isolation. When fossil fuels such as gasoline, coal, and oil are burned, for energy, of course, they release all types of toxic pollutants, including soot particles, nitrogen oxide, sulfur, mercury, iron, nickel, vanadium, and just about every other element on the periodic table. Coal plants even release small amounts of radioactive uranium and thorium into the air. It's okay to live on a planet abundant with chemicals, but we don't want all of them floating around in the air we breathe. It's better to keep them in the ground or in the laboratory. Exactly. That's That gives... Everybody, a, a taste of the flair and the, the depth, the range, and keeping keeping it real there. So, thank you. Did you have any other section that imparted something else? No, I think it's just um, important to note that I've written the book is uh, a, a resource for really all types of people, those who are trying to talk to their friends about climate change, those who don't really know about climate change. And it's uh, a science-based book, but it's not written for the scientist. It's written in everyday language, uh, accessible to every reader. So I think that's just something important to point out. Oh, and by the way, yes. the 50 chapters are all standalone chapters. So it kind of reads like a field guide. You don't have to read it front to back. You can just pick whatever chapter you like and kind of learn about whatever topic you'd like. So we have lots happening in the last week and a half. That's right. Around uh, there are members that are... Of the, heads of states that are at the Poland, or their emissaries at, at the Poland COP24. And we have also, uh, they're, they're bringing the initiatives or their goals and all that. Uh, Macron, well, let's start with what he did in what he was trying to advance. And I would like for you, to, while you're talking about what he was trying to advance with reducing carbon emissions, using your approach in your book, how would you have advised him to have addressed policy so there was not a a class effect because it triggered a huge class mm-hmm. kind of divide. Right. And um, so you, in your science and your solutions and addressing the misconceptions, have a way of getting around that so that there is equity in reducing greenhouse gas emissions overall. Yeah, I think something that we learned from that um, was, you know, you can't talk about solving the climate crisis if you're not going to talk about solving people's economic crisis, people's um, financial crisis, which many people are in. So in the case of France, uh, what Macron was trying to do was pass a somewhat of a carbon tax. There's a tax on um, diesel fuel. And, you know, people didn't like that. There's a lot of people who are um, you know, still commuting long distances, especially your people from rural areas. Um, and it was looked at as a sort of tax on poorer people um, who are going to be suffering from this. So I think one thing we learned uh, is if you want to tax fuel, you've got to think of a way to give back to the population. And in the case of that tax, the revenue was uh, going to be going basically to taking France out of its deficit which essentially means off paying a bunch of rich 
companies. I think the people want to see something more like what Citizens Climate Lobby is proposing, which is a fee and dividend proposal, which actually returns the money back to the public. The Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. I have to always read that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> now, that's exciting, and that's what that does. It's a, it's a proposal to give the money, reallocate it back to the population as a sort of monthly dividend. And that's, I think, the kind of populist-based tax, carbon tax plan that we need to see if it's going to be successful. So did you just cringe when you saw where he was slowly rolling out this disaster? Because it, it's so consequential. It was like a, a moment where mm-hmm. literacy could have been the center, sort of cons- the center stage center, but instead it that there were legitimate grievances and continue to be legitimate grievances where there is an unequal hit on uh, different levels of the economies. Right. I, I mean, I applaud his effort in in prioritizing climate change uh, solutions, but I, I think that you know there is there are better options on the table that don't leave uh, people behind who are already having financial hardship. And then Mr. Trudeau is having his own difficulties. Uh, his, I'd like to know if you could give us an analysis of his proposal. He's trying to, he set climate goals as a high priority in his administration, but he's experiencing headwinds with the provincial governments, up to four different ones, and the leadership there, and they're off their target for the reducing carbon emissions. What right. did you want to say about what Trudeau's up to? Yeah, so he's trying to get a, pass essentially a, a sort of federal carbon tax, and um, again, I, I applaud his efforts. I think that this is the kind of thing that we need to see, but it's not coming without difficulty in his own country, of course, of Canada. Canada is basically one of the areas which, um, you know, you kind of think about as a, a green country, so to speak, but they did did not meet their Kyoto. Uh, in fact, they pulled out of Kyoto. They're now sort of the ground zero for tar sands uh, extraction, uh, fossil fuels, feeding the world with oil. And they've really got to think seriously about how they're going to pass a carbon tax if they're going to meet their, you know, their climate mitigation uh, goals that they've proposed. China, incidentally, is is on uh, track to meeting their 2020 goals, but um, Canada is not. So this is sort of one step that Canada can possibly take to do right by those goals that they made. So were there any other leaders at, that are making a, a valuable case that help? And back to looking, we're going to keep weaving the misconceptions into everyday rollouts of climate leadership, though, but any other leadership you're seeing demonstrated in the uh, COP24 in Poland? Um, you know, I think I think a lot of nations are leading. I don't have a, a specific for you. The, I think the most important nation to, to keep in mind is our own nation and really the absence of leadership from our nation. So, um, you know, we can have a lot of uh, you know, a lot of Pacific islands, for instance, are going to be underwater, literally vanishing as sea levels rise. Those soon, 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 much sooner than <clears throat> we think. I mean, the projections by 2100 are up to eight or nine feet of sea level rise. So the United States is sort of immune to that only to some extent. We're already seeing flooding in Florida, the East Coast and even in Newport Beach. We're not leading in this country, and we really ought to be. We're, we've historically been a global leader, but we're really taking the back seat as it relates to climate change. There are real opportunities here to uh, grow jobs as we transition to a renewable energy future, yet we're still seeing the White House sending uh, basically coal advertisers out to the COP24 meeting. So that presence that we 
need to see politically behind climate solutions um, is only going to be there if we have the, the population pushing it. If we have people calling their House, Senate members, um, basically pressuring Washington to prioritize climate change. Along with my wanting to know how you are able, if you are, to be hopeful, it, let's say when you first started your career in research, and let's say you've, after you've finished your Ph.D., that the person then, if that person talked to the person this week that your country's leadership was joining with Russia, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and I don't think Australia joined in on this one, but on their position on fossil fuels at the international summit. You know, in 2018, to see that sort of trajectory, it's very, very disconcerting. I can only hope that it's... A, I mean, it's, a, not, it's not absurd. It's anguishing. Yeah, I mean, most people, your everyday people are not aware of the incredible danger that we are currently in right now as it relates to climate change. This is not something that we can, 50 years down the road, decide we're going to address. There is, um, you know, the notion of the tipping point does have, you know, merit. We can't just reverse and suck out CO2 out of the atmosphere as much as, you know, we'd like to think that's possible with any sort of um, meaningful impact. We've really got to think today about what kind of future we want to have. And if we want to push that down the road, we are making a choice. So we're making a choice whether we decide to fix the problem or not fix the problem. We are making a choice that's going to affect our future. So in preparation, we were just talking before we turned on our little microphones here. I wanted to raise, a, It's I don't think it's a directly quoted misconception in your 50 in the book, but a concern I have for people that are on board with the need for taking this up adamantly, but that the there's a kind of, I think, an assumption they have that we've gotten, actually, it's, it's partially addressed in one of your misconceptions. We've addressed problems before, and you, t you talk about how CFCs were, what right. that, that was reversed, acid rain, fallout was reversed, but I think those, those sample, those, they, they make the case that science is solving problems that were catastrophes in the making, but that it's also that people rely on that this large freight train of a carbon loading and greenhouse gas emission loading, that we've solved it before, we're going to solve this one too, and a kind of glibness. So how do you, how do, how do we do a better job of, of bringing them on board with it? It's a little more sure. dire than it's a, a sure deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a couple lessons to be learned yes. from the past. Um, as I mentioned in the book, um, in, in Beyond Debate, there are a couple historic examples of us actually doing the right thing and fixing what were atmospheric problems. Um, so from the case of acid rain, which was a problem throughout much of the second part of the 20th century, um, coming from sulfur dioxide emissions and, and NOx emissions, essentially, we... Nitrogen oxide. Nitrogen oxide emissions. Yeah, we... we we're able to grapple with that problem, but there's an important distinction there. That is, we reduced emissions, and and very quickly we saw NOx and sulfur dioxide in concentrations in the atmosphere drop off precipitously. That's because those pollutants actually dissipate within about a week or so after they're emitted. That lends itself to being able to fix very quickly that problem. The case of CFCs, those are more long-lived pollutants that were depleting the ozone layer back in the 60s and 70s. 
Um, but we had much lower emissions than we do today with carbon dioxide, where we're seeing literally tens of billions of metric tons every single year getting emitted to the atmosphere. Um, that problem, we, from the point that we uh, really discovered it was a problem to when we convened our national international summit, that was only about a 14-year period, and we already had an international summit to ban CFCs. Carbon dioxide, it's been decades and decades and decades. We're emitting much more of it. These chemicals last just as long in the atmosphere, yet we're still failing to address the problem. The future is looking much darker as it relates to climate change and carbon dioxide than it did from those prior two problems, which we actually fixed quite quickly and are still dealing with the ramifications of. So on your, speaking of the trends and all that, so on your dog and pony show, on the road the, for uh, along action, the road right? for the 36 states, so were you putting up the charts then for everybody to see the over the, the what is it the the 800 million cycling as well as the that well I, I'm I'm waving my hand around this mic and it's not very audible but that where there was the 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 emissions were climbing and they dropped before 2017 and then they started right. to redirect upward again were you showing those kinds of graphics to your audiences across the country yeah so we again, travel 35 different states and we were giving presentations across different, all types of, uh, you know, communities, churches, high school, colleges. And we were showing graphs about climate change and also sharing the stories and impacts that people were sharing with us as we traveled across the states relating to climate change, agriculture failing, um, floods, people's homes getting wrecked. By the way, all of these, this journey is online at roadforclimateaction.com. And we've got video interviews with people along the way, um, scientists, farmers, everyday people, NGO leaders. And yeah, a main goal of that project was to inform the general public about climate change, climate impacts, but also to share stories with the public from their peers so that it's not all coming from, you know, politicians. It's not all coming from newspapers. People can actually hear from their own neighbors what climate change is doing. So... You sold those books. I'm, I'm wondering, have you heard back from anybody, Shadron, Nebraska, or anywhere else after the road show? Um, yeah, we actually, somebody emailed me just a couple days ago saying, thanks for your road, your visit to, I think it was Virginia, and they told me your impact is much greater than you know. And I'm not sure exactly what they meant by that, but that was very exciting to hear. Oh, you got to follow that. I'm I know, sure. I know. Yeah, we, what, what, what was it, and what are they doing, and that, yeah. Yeah, I, I will have to inquire further about that. Uh, and we also got a, an email from someone in Louisiana who wants to potentially have us come out and do like a mini, uh, you know, citywide sort of city to city trip in Louisiana to talk to people about climate change. Um, so there's a lot of things opening up. I really, uh, we're actually, I should mention, yes. going to be launching a Pacific Northwest iteration of this journey coming up in probably April. So tune in to roadforclimateaction.com to get news, get onto our newsletter and find out how you can follow that. So you'll start in California and work your way up? Yep. We're not going to be doing uh, the whole nation this time. We'll have uh, probably more time for talking, less time driving, and we'll be going all the way up probably to Canada, visiting the Alberta region where they're doing a lot of the the, the tar sands, yeah. uh, fossil fuel extraction, coming down through Montana, Idaho, and talking to as many people as we can. Oh, that's cool. So it'll be a kind of a continental, coastal. Yes, it will. Seas. Climate, yeah. continental, coastal convening converging <laughs> yeah when you look at our last route we sort of there's a, a blank spot and we're filling that in now 
Wow. Well, no, I, I'd like to find out more about uh, what, yeah, what worked in those there and what, what you will, before you go to the, on your April trip, we're going to have you back again. Great. And the Louisiana trip, I know that the Mitch Landro, that whether mm. he's going to be one of your people, he's, he's looking to see whether he's got a national platform for leadership. So mm. he could be like a big lever with this. I'll have to pursue that campaign. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and you'll have to follow it up, though, because I, I want to know what worked for them. And the, and the chat, maybe, and follow up with your, you know who, you, you've got information about your sales in Shadron, Nebraska, so you can find out yeah. what they're doing. Now, if you'll tell us, what was the venue at Shadron, Oh, that was Nebraska. A, I think was it was it a, a church or was it a school? No, or it was a, a school. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was a high school or a junior high school, but we were standing up on a stage. In fact, it was our biggest projector screen. It was like a little oh, yeah? movie theater. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty exciting. And we filled in uh, again, like 55 people showed up. Great Q and A. It was it was really exciting. Yeah, a great a great event. And and we, uh, you know, I, I talked to somebody in Texas. Uh, I was at a gas station and someone walked up to me. Uh, we had a big sign on our car you know on the road for climate action and and he wanted to talk about climate change and um, in what ways well he seemed a little skeptical yeah he you know he said basically what's this uh what's this on the road for climate action business that that you've got on your car and i explained to him and his first response was well you know climate has always changed you know it's changed for a long time so i you know you got i got to acknowledge that sure it has changed let's talk about what some of the difference were differences were uh are, are today and we had a good conversation, and at the end of the day, he walked away having purchased a book right out of my car. This random person in Texas at a gas station who actually seemed skeptical of climate change at first. So where did it? Where did you see that you were making the inroad? This is where we all get equipped, Shahir, I th- to engage everybody. That that skeptic just showed up. So right, I think the key there was to acknowledge what's true. Uh, the climate has always changed. If we're gonna be if we're not going to acknowledge that, then we're going to instantly look like we're just sort of, you know, not being forthcoming. And uh, the other thing is to not get defensive, not get angry. People have different views, and, and that's totally okay at the end of the day. Um, let's just talk about our views, and let's talk about how we can all learn more. And I, I told him, hey, take a look at my car uh, with, you know, that you just pointed at. It's not a Mercedes. I'm not getting paid uh, very much at all to to do what I do. I'm doing it because it's it's uh, you know this is information that needs to get out there, and I'm not some rich Ivy Tower scientist who's just you know preaching for money. I'm actually something quite different. So take a look at this book and tell me if you know you uh, if this will change your mind. He seemed like a reader and he was interested, and um, I think that's the kind of dialogue that we have to have with people is try to break down barriers rather than get sort of dig our heels in the sand and start arguing. Did you get an idea what line of work this man was in? Uh, he's a sole proprietor. He has his own business. He actually sells um, shaving cream that's uh, natural shaving cream. Uh, he told me He's a hunter, but, you know, he cares, therefore, about the environment. Um, So we're not, uh, you know, we had our differences, but we also had common ground. You know, I don't personally hunt, but I do care about our forests and our trees, and he hunts and, therefore, wants to preserve those things. So let's talk about how we want to preserve the environment, and uh, that's sort of where he found common ground. And he, at the end of the day, hopefully learned something. That's a really interesting point that there could be coalescing with hunters Mm -hmm. who are definitely observing trends in the whatever if it's an, a flooded duck duck area or a you know, declining duck area or whether it's uh, some 
mountainous area that's that's just drying up to a brittle crunch. What they're right. they're pulling up all kinds of data and the sort of the movement of animals in other areas and that you, that's come, bringing up lots of misconceptions and you're you're picking up in your book. So the hunters are some data miners that might be an, a really important ally in getting out this desperate message. Sure, I mean climate change is affecting almost every aspect of our society and there's almost always a link that you can find a common ground that you can find with some person um, find out you know find common ground of something that they care about that is going to be affected by climate change you know if you care about refugees well we're seeing more climate refugees today now than we are political refugees you know if you care about war and peace future wars are probably going to be over oil resources and over water resources Um, so i mean literally disease, infectious disease. We're seeing Zika, Lyme disease, all kinds of diseases spreading now because of warmer winters and expanding ranges of pests. Uh, There's really just almost every issue you can name is going to be affected in some way, most of the time adversely. And we can always find that common ground to sort of get people to care about this issue. Well, for those people who keep thinking that we're we're out of the woods here and we're talking about... in the agricultural sector, where you talk about the the fact that the CO2, you take on the misconception that CO2 is benefiting agriculture, and so a little bit of that is going uh, goes a long ways. But we're now we're experiencing. I'm trying to pull up the the quote there about. Uh, it's like a, you use the food analogy. Yeah, I mean, I can even quote the recent National Climate Assessment, which talked about this same topic. Um, to quote that, the fourth assessment, yields of major U.S. crops such as corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, sorghum, and cotton are expected to decline over this century as a consequence of increases in temperature and possibly changes in water availability and disease and pest outbreaks. That's the National Climate Assessment that was just published um, about two weeks ago. Right. Oh, um, yeah, we were going to get to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that is uh, that is the future of agriculture in the United States as we continue to heat up the globe. In fact, we've already seen the Corn Belt start to make its way north. So corn uh, production is opening up uh, increasingly so at the southern border, border of Canada. And people in the United States, prior uh, previously corn farmers, are actually changing the crop. So we're actually seeing sort of our bread and butter in the United States, which is corn, move north into Canada. Um, this is, right. again, a, a reality. And we talked to, Athena and I talked to farmers up in Minnesota. Their crops there are getting totally wiped out as torrential downpours. In the case of one farmer we spoke to, 17 inches of rain in a 24-hour period. Come. Amazing. Absolutely. I mean, here in California, what did we see? One inch over 24 hours, and it seemed like a, you know, it seemed like a big storm last week. I said, you know, what does that look like? A lot of people think of yeah. more rain is good for crops. So, you know, could you speak to that? And he said, well, yeah, let me tell you what it looked like. And again, this video is on our website, roadforclimateaction.com, and uh, it's about a 12-minute video. He talks about literally trees washing down the road. He talked about the potato farmer down the way from him who uh, sits at a lower elevation, uh, had all the soil just completely washed off his property. It exposed all the potatoes. He lost the entire potato crop. This is literally what people are experiencing as you talk to farmers across the country. And this man even had to change his crops over the last five or six years because the conditions in, in his state are no longer suitable for this kind of production that he's previously been carrying out. So there are so many 
misconceptions that give us something to take away. You were able to make marvelous inroads all over the country, and you equip us with a very potent. Not this is no clipboard. This is like this is the the side attraction with the Gideon Bible in all the hotel rooms to to well, bring thank it you. to. The, so Shahir, I want to thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Absolutely, and can I mention uh, one last thing? The, Please the, do. So the the book is actually I'm doing a December sale where all uh, shipping is totally free this month if you get it off my website, which is roadforclimateaction.com. So free shipping the month of December. It's a great holiday gift. And uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. I want to thank you. My guest has been Shahir Mazri. He's an air quality specialist at UCI. And at this, he's talking about his brand new book, Beyond Debate, Answers to Misconceptions on Climate Change, published by... Dockside Herman. Sailing Press. Dockside Sailing Press. So it's not sale. This is, this is a publisher. And so it's available at either your favorite independent book dealer or on roadforaction.com road for climate action road for climate action thanks to here for coming back on the show we're going to be Thank right you. back after a station break with Arliss Reynolds a newly elected Costa Mesa city council member don't go away we'll be right back Welcome back to the show. That was Snarky Puppies, track Shofuken. Thanks for staying tuned. My next guest is Arliss Reynolds, newly elected Costa Mesa City Council member serving along with some really historic results. Council with women majority, their first Latino members, three council members, 35 and younger, and a majority that is with Estancia High School grads. Mm-hmm. Arliss is a product of an upbringing in Costa Mesa and a descendant of extended family deep into public service. A grandfather was a police officer in Inglewood, then an L.A. County deputy sheriff. Her grandmother was a school principal for more than 40 years with L.A. Unified School District. Her father, Marine Corps officer who served in Vietnam, and her mother is a first-generation college graduate. Both parents were career public teachers. Her brother, Anastasia, high school graduate, too, is a deputy attorney general to California Department of Justice focusing on consumer protection. That's the pedigree. Arliss earned her Bachelor's of Science in Engineering degree at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and is a member of the UCI Executive MBA program studying how tech is transforming industries and the global economy. She worked at the Cadmus Group, an employee-owned consulting company where she led engineering research projects specializing in impact evaluation of technologies and strategies. She analyzes clean energy investments and has now has been serving as vice chair of Costa Mesa's Park and Recreation Commission. She's been a fixture at forums, rallies, the rubber chicken circuit, you name it, everywhere. We first met when Arliss was in the thick of organizing with her mother, her neighbors, and with other local professionals to hold the California Coastal Commission accountable for its considerations of the Banning Ranch Project, which was about, I think, two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that okay? So Arliss 
joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Council Member Arliss Reynolds. Thank you so much. I think it's a huge story what happened in Costa Mesa. I don't know that it's really been fully captured. What composition that you've created, I don't myself live in Costa Mesa, mm-hmm. so I don't know what was the politics in District 5 what, that you're representing mm-hmm. now. So, but were you, were your hours and days of campaigning as vigorously matched by your opponent, Mr. Mansour? Oh, you know, I suspect not. We're jumping straight into the campaign. You just took me through a, a three-year history of my uh, activism and um, really this election in Costa Mesa. We've You listed some of the reasons it's historic. Um, and it's really the, the end of many, many, many years, um, even before me, of organizing in Costa Mesa. It's really a, a long-term transformation from a, a very right-leaning city council to now a very progressive city council. It really is. And I, I mean, to your credit, Arliss, and it's not like I'm in a, some kind of a campaign shield, but I think for people who uh, aren't familiar, uh, Alan Mansour has also, he's represented parts of where we are in the state legislature. So he's mm-hmm. a veteran of both city right. council government and state legislative government. Right. So you were able, you, and you you practically doubled the polling, the, mm-hmm. doubled the votes that he received in there. So that, yeah. was there a part of that the being that is now a district and not citywide that made some of that a reality? Absolutely. The the districting, so this is the first time that Costa Mesa was running by districts. We've split the city into six districts. Uh, three had open seats in this election. And it really changes the strategy and I think creates a lot of opportunity in Costa Mesa uh, for people like me, people who are new to politics, um, people who may not have access to a lot of money. Well, let's, let's roll that back a little bit. People that are activists are not that new to politics. That's true. That's true. And I think that's actually one of the things that's changing now is that activists who maybe would have looked at politics as a, a negative exotic, thing before right now thing. see that as a necessary um, move to actually make the change we want to see in our cities. But what districting does, I was talking to a friend who's actually running uh, in an upcoming election, and she was asking for some advice. And I told her, you know, I asked her what her numbers are, and her district's about the size of mine. Okay. And I told her, strategy doesn't really matter at that size. I got, I think I won with 3,000 votes. You could think of the best marketing strategies. You could spend a lot of time on data, on graphics. You could spend a lot of time on social media. But really, your time in a small district is best spent talking to people. So you throw strategy out the window and just start knocking on doors. And I really think, you know, there are a number of reasons I won, but, but I'm... I'm very confident that I was knocking on a lot more doors than my opponents. And the reason I think some of Costa Mesa's city council race story is not bigger news is lots of eyeballs were on up ticket action, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which it and it was a protracted kind of a result watching several different congressional districts right in Orange County mm-hmm. flip to uh, from uh, red to blue, but. Did you find, and I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of uh, strictly on sort of horse race kinds of things, but I am kind of curious about how much that the upticket had to do to drive what was happening. You had activists that were also lifting your stuff mm-hmm. along with them. You had, there's a lot more money in congressional races. Did that have a positive effect on your campaign that you thought was palpable? 
Uh, absolutely. And I think it went both ways. So okay. we benefited from a lot of people outside Costa Mesa really interested in helping the congressional races. I had, for example, uh, a group of volunteers who I, I met through my brother who lives in Los Angeles doing text messaging for me. We did three rounds of text messaging. And these are volunteers that probably wouldn't have been involved in my campaign if there wasn't a high stakes congressional race. But I think that our local races really benefited up ticket as well, because again, and there's nothing more influential than having a candidate show up on your doorstep. And for us in the small district races, that was our, our plan, our strategy. We knocked on almost every okay. voter's door. You did. And I think that benefited. When we were knocking on doors, we were talking about the assembly race. We were talking about the congressional races. And so I think the the records that we saw in voter turnout had a lot to do with, with the local candidates having direct conversations with, with longtime voters and with first-time voters. Okay, let's talk about the first-time voters. Mm -hmm. What engaged their attention? You had their eyeballs and their mm -hmm. sets of ears. What? Mm -hmm. How artists did you do it? I mean, you were there. That, that's oh, yeah. 80% of it showing yeah. up. Right? And those are some of my favorite stories. I can I remember yes. the addresses and I can picture the faces of people who I, I convinced to register, who said they were voting for the first time, and who followed up after the election emailing me saying, I'm so excited that I voted in this election. Uh, I think what influenced them was was candidates standing on their doorstep, having real conversations about what a city council does, um, how much influence their individual voice can have when they communicate with their city council member. And we fixed problems throughout the campaign. Oftentimes people's oh. issues were very, very simple issues. There's a crack in the sidewalk that I always trip on. I could, I knew who to send that request to, and within a week it was fixed. And I think people seeing that quick turnaround gave them more faith in, hey, government does actually do something. So did you represent yourself as the vice chair of the Parks Commission? Uh, I certainly said that that was something that I, I did. Um, I wasn't using that position. No, of no, no. In but, uh, but, well, people yeah. do, and the, legitimately, but I'm mm -hmm. just saying that so you could say, I'm, as a commissioner, I'm, I'm aware of this process, and this yes. is how you can handle that. Yes. And, so that they can see right, their right. service. And I could give uh, a lot of information about you know, how, how, what the city's processes are for maintaining parks, for example, or what was coming down the pipeline. So when we, going back to those first-time voters, and, the, and they were any age or is it mainly a certain age? Um, any age. I, uh, there were you know, people who were just turning 18 in um, October and November. Uh, there were you know, young um, millennials who were jaded about the uh, political process. And there were 60, 70-year-olds who had never voted before, or lifelong residents of the city um, who had never met a city council member or city council candidate before who agreed to vote. So for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Arliss Reynolds, newly elected, sworn in last week, Costa Mesa City Council member amidst a major overhaul in the city in this general election in 2018, winning in a sizable margin mm -hmm. against a veteran politician. And so uh, the others that join you, Andrea Marr, Manuel Chavez, and, of course, Katrina Foley mm -hmm. returning to the council. She's mayor. Mm -hmm. Everybody sworn in last week. first directly elected so mayor. So we're going to have to get used to not getting uh, – getting a hold of you is going to get harder with all of your responsibilities, and that's the way it's supposed to be. So, <laughs> Well, it shouldn't be. And actually, that's one of our uh, – one of yeah. my primary goals is, is fixing this relationship between our constituency and our government. 
we've had, you know, too many people that I ran into had never met a council member before. And that we need to fix that. And I or think, you did by showing up. Right. In right. Campaign. Right. And we need to keep showing up, so, even though the campaign's over. <laughs> so the majority has a, it's had a different ideological composition. So mm-hmm. now you're sworn in. You've been in office for about a week. Uh, yes, exactly. So, uh, one wants to know if there are skeletons. You go, oh, my. You, mean, you, you know more or <laughs> less what your budget is, what kind of a deficit you might be, mm-hmm. or, or you know what kind of deferred kinds of payments there are in, in municipal governance. Mm-hmm. But were there any sort of shockers that you thought, oh, man, they've sat on this this story for a long time. Now it, uh, now it's our, it's on us to to deal with this. Probably it's not and, yet. And okay, maybe we have to give you a you few know, more months. Yeah, maybe we'll get back into that. I think what a lot of us, um, or what those of us who are newly elected, are excited to do, and really what our constituents want us to do, is to move forward. Uh, a lot of people will talk who pay attention to Costa Mesa politics will talk about the vitriol and how negative council well, the- meetings are, and and there's such a positive response to this election. I think we really don't want to let ourselves get bogged down by that, and, and we want to move forward. Okay. Well, it, it I mean, the whole demographic profile of the the brand new council mm-hmm. itself is it's a sta- it's a statement. It is. It's a statement. It is. I mean, just a sort of a a vigor and access that sort mm-hmm. of gives it a whole different, but that we have the opposite happening in the city of Irvine mm-hmm. with our composition. So I, you guys well, should push for districts. Well, uh, <laughs> oh, that's true. That's uh, well, if we, we've stopped annexing things at this point. So I guess we can sort of commit to a district. Now. That's yeah. actually, that's a, a good topic to have later on in community radio for mm-hmm. sure. Well, you are coalescing possibly with other city council members that were voted in other parts of the county? Is there a, some kind of a sub kind of chamber of, uh, of yes. around? A secret a club of newly no, elected council one, members. But is there something, <laughs> something going on? We did. I got to know um, quite a few of the other people who are running for office at the local level, um, not just in Orange County, actually, across the state. I was a member of the Emerge uh, California program. This was a program specifically to train Democratic women to run for office. The newly elected mayor of San Francisco is an Emerge graduate, for example. So I know women who won um, from Northern California all the way down to um, Elisa Viejo. And uh, we stayed in touch throughout the campaign. And those of us who won, and a lot of us won, um, have been in touch about you know ideas going forward. And I think we'll continue to, to talk to each other about strategies and, and advice and how to deal with certain situations. So in the more formal setting, mm-hmm. what regional or countywide boards do you envision that you would like to serve on? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we haven't had those assignments yet. Those right. will be coming up in January. But what, what's the desire? I'm very interested in working regionally. Uh, one of the number one issues in Costa Mesa is a number one issue across Orange County, and that's working on solutions to homelessness. Uh, John Stevens is uh, our council member. John Stevens in Costa Mesa has been very active on that issue, and I look forward to joining him on um, both very local solutions, but also working regionally. Um, my, you described sort of my activist uh, life that led me into this role, and uh, that's really centered around environmental issues. And so I'm very interested in working regionally on that as well. Well, with the the uh, water district, the, um, the air what quality. What organization? You know, I'm interested in uh, organizations that are looking at the Santa Ana River. Okay. 
both uh, environmental aspects of that and the recreational aspects of that. And do you like? Are there any climate ordinances that you're interested in having adopt here? Uh, there in Costa Mesa? Yes, of course. Uh, and I think what we would like to start with are some of the really simple, quick payback I- I- um, ideas. So instead of taking a, a big bite or a big step into uh, climate action, easing in with, with some sustainability procedures at City Hall. And so, yeah, yes. demonstrating sort of the, the cost effectiveness of being sustainable. Okay. So... A constituent I queried about of yours, I queried oh. about a question to uh-huh. ask you and put you in the the hot seat here is <laughs> there are various special permits, uh, zoning changes being made to accommodate <laughs> some sober living residences. I think the bias here wasn't so much that sober living isn't supported, but it maybe some of the sober living residences are more business than residents. Mm-hmm. How are you interested in addressing that mm-hmm. matter? Well, we just had a really important uh, win in a legal battle on this issue. Costa Mesa now is, is I believe, has the highest density of sober living homes in all of Orange County, and I think That's one of the highest up. in the state. Okay. And so it's something that we've really been struggling with for a number of years um, in the way it's impacted uh, residential neighborhoods. And the, you know, our, we have many members of the community who will, who will openly share that there are very good, long-standing sober living homes in our neighborhood. But what's happened is this kind of transition to a business operation, and dense, and that's yeah, the density so. more, you know, 15 people in a home next to, you know, uh, uh, right next to homes where people are raising five-year-old children. And there have been um, sort of a a growing number of what we call nuisances that uh, uh, have impacted neighborhoods, caused people to move out of Costa Mesa, really change the character of neighborhoods. Yeah, well, and and this person talked to the point of a a 12-foot setback was uh, reconsidered and uh, special permitted to a 12-inch setback. And that would be be quite a, a a game changer in a neighborhood. Oh, I'm not sure what that's referring to. That might Perso- be in some development standards. One thing that we have that was challenged in court is the um, 650-foot separation between homes. So one of our strategies to to address the density of sober living homes was to have a minimum distance between homes so you wouldn't have four next to each other on a street, for example. And uh, what was really positive for our city and, and something we were on edge about for quite a while was um, this uh, a battle that went to federal court um, where we just won. Uh, and winning means that, that the jury acknowledged that the city should have the right to 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 enact some uh, legislation regulating sober living homes in residential neighborhoods. The police power of, of <laughs> municipal government. Well, I have more questions than I have time. Artists, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Ask a Leader today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. My guest was Artis Reynolds, the newly elected Costa Mesa City Council, sworn in last week and off to the races. That was my wrap. Next week, Marguerite Wiersma of the UCI Mirage School of Management will return to offer insight about trends and the latest legislation on women appointed to corporate boards as the Me Too disclosures and revelations open up. Then the the second half will be Nuha Isak, who will return with an update on the disaster deepening in her native Yemen. 
A journalist killing in the Saudi consulate in Turkey finally was the factor that put Yemen's catastrophe on the American international sites. And But Nuha has been watching it for three years. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you.